listening to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Check out all the podcasts and everything they are up to at OsirisPod.com. I have a great episode for you today, a terrific interview with Ian Tyrell. Ian is a professor of history at the University of New South Wales. He's the author of numerous books, including True Gardens of the Gods, Californian Australian Environmental Reform from 1860 to 1930, and also the book Historians in Public. His latest book, American Exceptionalism, A New History of an Old Idea, is the focus of this episode and is a book that persists as an important and remarkably cohesive examination of a contentious notion. The idea that the United States is unlike every other country in world history is a surprisingly resilient one. Throughout his distinguished career, Ian Tyrell has been one of the most influential historians researching the idea of American exceptionalism, but he has never written a book focused solely on it until now. The notion that American identity might be exceptional emerged, Tyrell shows in his book, from the belief that the nascent early republic was not simply a post-colonial state, but a generally new experiment in an imperialistic world dominated by Britain. Prior to the Civil War, American exceptionalism fostered declarations of cultural, economic, and spatial independence. As the country grew in population and size, becoming a major player in the global order, its exceptionalist beliefs came more and more into focus and into question. Over time, a political divide emerged. Those who believed that America's exceptionalism was the basis of its virtue and those who saw America as either a long way from perfect or actually fully unexceptionable. In his book, Tyrell masterfully articulates the many forces that made American exceptionalism such a divisive concept. Today, the demands that people acknowledge American exceptionalism have grown ever more strident, even as the material and moral evidence for that exceptionalism to the extent that there ever was any, has withered away. In this episode, Ian and I discuss the origins of American exceptionalism and talk about how one would go about trying to quantify a nation's exceptionalism. We explore how American exceptionalism persists as ideology representing reality rather than an account of American actuality. We talk about the rise of religious-based American exceptionalism in the 1970s and 80s, how America can be perceived as exceptional in a negative light these days, and a whole lot more. This is a good one. I know you will enjoy this interview with Ian Tyrell. So thank you again. I really, really appreciate it. It's an incredibly important topic, I think. It's something I think about all the time. It's really wild to me, this idea. But um, to start, I'm curious why you wanted to tell this story. In the acknowledgments, you mentioned that um, you say, sometimes I feel I've been writing this book all my life. In fact, I began uh, to think about it and take it seriously in the mid-1980s. So this book was a long time 
in the in the making for you was is that the case it's a very long time in the making yeah. um when i returned to australia in 1974 i had no idea that i'd be writing a book on american exceptionalism so i was making my career as a specialist which at that stage meant the history of uh, social reform movements in the 19th century so I was pretty well occupied with other things, but when I began to write a book about the woman, world's woman's Christian temperance union, I began mm -hmm. to see all of these international connections that the American woman's uh, movement had. And so I then began to, to look more, more deeply into the question of just how different was the United States from other countries? What did that mean? And it was precisely that time that there was a lot of talk about transnationalized began to be a lot of talk about transnationalizing american history and i took part in that conversation so it really grew out of that debate about what where does national american national history you know fit into the, the larger question of history more generally and the more i looked into it the more i i realized that, that americans really um they hadn't they hadn't really self-examined on this question very much and yeah. um but um, there were lots of bits and pieces and, you know, a couple of books and things, but not very much. So I became very interested in it. And the more that the United States became the dominant power, particularly after the end of the Cold War, the hegemonic uh, superpower, uh, the only one in the world, then, you know, it, it raised American history to a, a new level of importance around the world, including in my country. It had always been important in Australia. Mm -hmm. Australia's contacts with the United States were, were very strong going back further, but but this really intensified the, the issue of where, do, where does the US stand in this? And, um, I moved into various other projects, and that's the other reason why it took so long, because as an academic in Australia, I, I really was required to do a lot of research and to do a lot of teaching, which is, in the US case, I think a little bit more... Uh, unevenly distributed you know there are yeah. people who concentrate very heavily on research and those who concentrate on teaching, teaching. Yeah. but in those days in australia you had to do both mm -hmm. and you had to do both intensively so you can imagine you were pretty busy but you also began to get a kind of synoptic view of what the united states was mm -hmm. all about because you were teaching on so many different things yeah. to do with american history um so i uh you know as a as a foreigner as a you know non-american i was um pretty well placed actually to look at this question as you can imagine from the, to draw upon my experience in all of the all of the books that I've written I've this is the my 11th book on my own so I've written quite a few books and quite a few of them have touched on American exceptionalism in one way or another um, yeah. but none of them none of them dealt squarely with the issue of American exceptionalism I've they were always been, about something else yeah I've been, they were yeah. always specialists they were specialist books Oh yeah, they were specialist works on, on things like um, you know the American conservation aspects of American conservation oh, wow. things like that. So and they're all very important. But uh, in when I retired uh, in 2012, I decided to devote more attention to this topic and have my say once once and for all uh, <laughs> with a book. It's amazing how thorough this look of this idea. So let's dig into the beginning a little bit and some of the stories told here. When um, when would you say that this idea, um, when, you know, when did Americans start sharing this narrative about their perceived uh, exceptionalism? Like when did, it, when did this be, idea begin in America? Well, obviously in the, in the colonial period, um, Americans shared a sense of their, um, their place as being, uh, and they thought of it, began to think of it as America. Hmm. Um, 
So this is deeply rooted in uh, European history, actually. Um, initially, the idea of America really meant North and South America. And the idea of it as being a, a specially abundant place was something which was um, applicable not just to what became the United States, but to the whole of North and South America. And it was really a, only over time, uh, I suppose you could say with the American Revolution, um, um, that sort of brings a major distinguishing mark in that, in that it, you know, it, it sort of put a flag in the ground which said, you know, we stand for the following things. Um, you know, whether or not they're actually implemented, of course, has always been another matter, but mm -hmm. that, that provided for me, and it has for a lot of uh, theorists who've written on this, the, the key turning point. So that is the American yep. Revolution and the ideas of the American Revolution um, as a, uh, you know, uh, egalitarian with, uh, promise mm -hmm. in American life for the equality of, of all, all people, or they're not implemented as such. Now, there was that other strand, which I talk about a lot in the book, which is of, of the United States as a chosen nation. But uh, the Puritans, Puritans had an idea of chosenness, but they obviously weren't talking about the United States because the United States didn't exist at that time. Mm -hmm. um, they were British North American colonies and um, not all of them joined, not all of the British colonies in North America joined the revolution. Mm -hmm. um, so it's quite anachronistic to talk about, to talk, if you were going to talk about the Puritans as having a sense of the United States as a special place. I mean, they're, they're, it, was, it was their people that were special and possibly chosen yep. to, 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 uh, to represent God or to do, to do God's work in, in the world and in the hereafter, you know, and to contribute to the uh, salvation of the world. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, 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 uh, that, strain re that strain really remains in American mm -hmm. thought, even if people don't openly say or believe yeah. in the idea of it as a chosen nation, but it's un it underlies a lot of what, what people think about this topic and partly that just rep represents the huge influence of evangelical religion in the United yeah. States as a, as a force um, and it's, it's kind of residual and, it, and then it becomes secularized with the American rebel a bit secularized with the American Revolution mm -hmm. the idea of it's, it's, um, a, not a it's, a, it's a chosen country from that a chosen republic if you like mm -hmm. um, becomes a theme from the, from that time onwards and questions about whether the United States is in fact, you know, a, a new Israel or a second Israel or, a, you know, a successor Israel to Israel in the, in the biblical testimony. Yeah, that's, it's, it's really wild. You mentioned just the word abundance. And I think something we have to discuss um, kind of a, a foundation piece is exceptionalism. Like what is it, what does it mean in that, how do you quantify it? I mean, you, mentioned how exceptionalism isn't a class ideology, but a national one that frames how Americans judge their nation against other nations. Um, but with that in mind, I was wondering how you could, you could speak a little bit about how one could judge or quantify except, exceptionalism. You mentioned a couple other, uh, a couple approaches in the book that you can look at to actually find out if this is real or not. Yeah. Um... Well, when you look around the world, um, if you're going to, there's two basic approaches. One is to think of it as a set of beliefs which are, are rooted somehow in um, in some kind of providential uh, sanction. Uh, that is, uh, you know, God's got a special role for the United States. Um, but the other is is that the United States is empirically uh, 
distinct from other countries. But that that I you know I call that social science exceptionalism or Lipsettian exceptionalism because of the role of Timur Martin Lipset in mm -hmm. in uh, huge influence in developing that idea. But the it's it's just an enormous project and really an impossible project because it really requires you to to determine that the United States is different from all other countries and in ways that each of those other countries is not different from one another. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the whole project revolves around a sort of self-identification with exceptionalism from the very start, and it validates itself. Um, it can't be proven. Um, I mean, it, it doesn't matter which characteristic you take, you can argue that there are, you know, to some degree that's different from all other countries, but then you've got to look at all other countries to see if they're different from one another yeah. and whatever, whatever, whatever you're talking about. Um, you can take a few things like the fact that the United States has, you know, um, you know, developed a, uh, a constitution which has lasted, uh, you know, for over 200 years, some say, but many other people will say that it had to be remade during the Civil War. Uh, and I would agree with that. Um, but um, all that, you know, that it's, you know, a foundation of modern democracy, but um, these are particular characteristics and the meaning is very slippery. The United States has never been a truly democratic country because it hasn't given equal rights uh, to participate in the political process to all. Uh, uh, so when we look at other countries, we can find plenty of other countries that have got a better record on the uh, incorporation of all citizens into the polity uh, than the United States. Um, yeah, so uh, I don't find the argument from empirical reality very um, justifiable. Certainly, the United States is a, has a, a you know abundant environment. It's it's huge amounts of natural resources, but it's not the largest in land area of all countries. It doesn't have the most people. Whatever characteristic you you get, if you really compare the United States against all other countries, the United States usually comes out somewhere in the middle or in the top echelons, but not necessarily number one at all things. Um, and yet the idea of American exceptionalism requires the United States to be number one. Um, and uh, and th this is one of the reasons probably why the uh, American uh, you know, politicians, the leaders are very uh, worried about China because in many ways, China has got characteristics which are which it's overtaking the United States. Not in all, obviously not in democracy, but in some of the characteristics which have been associated with exceptionalism. So, so I make a big point in the book about how big and exceptional are different. Um, there are countries that are bigger. And even if you take look at Brazil, for example, in the Americas, um, abundance didn't just apply to the United States. It also applied to Brazil. Um, so the argument has to be somewhat different. It has to range around, well, what do they make of their abundance? And that gets you into arguments about the enterprise of the people and so on. Uh, but you just can't take the material characteristics and assume that from that, that uh, that proves American exceptionalism. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely does. I mean, the numbers don't add up. I mean, is uh, I think that is, is a good place to ask, too. I mean, the idea of... Um, you know, exceptionalism isn't an American idea alone. Of course, it's, it's a big driving force in the nation right now is, I mean, you cited a couple of examples, China, I guess, is, you know, they, they might have their own idea of exceptionalism currently going on in Brazil, too. But I mean, there's been other, um, you know, examples throughout time that we could speak about a little bit. I mean, the Soviet Union's one, um, uh, especially before communism fell, I mean, that, that existed there as well. Yes, uh, that's right. Um, a kind of a millenary and sort of um, aim to, you know, to, to uh, spread socialism all over the world with mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, Russia as the uh, or the Soviet Union, uh, of course, bigger than Russia, the Soviet Union uh, as the kind of exemplar for other countries. Now, that's one one example of that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Britain had its own version of exceptionalism with the idea of a, a parliamentary democracy and spreading the, the rule of law to all of its colonies. Mm -hmm. um, and that was deeply rooted in the Protestant Reformation and ideas of, uh, of Britain as an elect nation, uh, the idea of the elect, especially chosen nation. Uh, and, and in many ways, the whole idea of exceptionalism is really derived from Britain. Yeah. Um, um, so it's not exceptional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I cite a string of countries that have got ideas of chosenness. Yeah. Um, but what makes them different is that is that is that none of them are as big or as powerful as the United yeah. States currently is. Yep. But um, as a historian, I know that power doesn't last forever. Sure. And and the idea of American exceptionalism is something that was as the United States has always been exceptional. Yeah. Yeah. So the I and mean, always will be the. It yep. always will be the uh, belief. Um, yeah, th I so mean, that's, that's the idea. That, the, the, that's yeah. the idea. It, it exists in, you know, it's it's not a reality, but it's an ideology representing reality that they use. Yeah. I, I think it's be it, it's interesting to uh, to ask, you know, why um, this would be the aim of a government to drive this idea forward. I mean, what's what 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 is what would be a purpose that that you know they would i mean it became i mean we saw it with i mean even going through kennedy to johnson all the way to reagan just and everyone using this all these leaders just grappling onto the idea of 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 the power of of exclaiming this idea of american exceptionalism and what is what's the aim there i mean there's there's a power to the to the ideology well people need i think there's an understanding that people need beliefs and national leaders benefit if if they can concentrate those beliefs on supporting whatever the government is doing. Um, I don't think it's a conspiracy of any kind. I think the, the leaders themselves are enveloped in the same kind of ideology. Um, so I'm not, I'm not arguing there. I never argue in the book that they're forcing this on other people. It's, uh, it's something which I argue has to be had to be made and it grows over time, it changes. Um, but uh, it's it's obviously advantageous in that you've got to have people to believe in something. Otherwise, you know, why are you doing these things? Why are you going to war? Or why are you why are you supporting such a huge military, for example? Uh, what is the point of all of that? Could could you get by with a lot less of this, that, or the other? Um, and you probably could, and some other countries do, and some of them regard themselves as exceptional. You know, some of the Nordic countries, for example, although, although these days they're very much on the, on the in, in the NATO camp. Um, you know, they have a strong sense of Scandinavian exceptionalism. So, you know, countries that have kind of mediated between East and West in terms of socialism and produced a welfare state and, and avoided some of the, uh, of the, the tragedies that have occurred in the past. Um, and, um, uh, you know, so that it's, it's, it's possible for them to feel exceptional, even though they don't have this huge material abundance. In the US case, it's very much tied up with being, you know, the, these days with being the number one military power and, being, and, and having its values spread all over the world at the same time. Those two things are sort of in, interrelated and it helps to have people who, are, who believe in these things. Um, and I think that most Americans to some degree do, although many of them understand that uh, it just hasn't been fulfilled. And for me, that the question is, well, well, when, you know, um, when will this be fulfilled? Um, the, the great uh, paradox for me of this is that, that is that Americans can believe that every four years they do have an opportunity to turn everything around. 
that, that if you elect a new leader, that will end all of the problems. Well, it doesn't happen in other countries, but people think that that's what's going to happen in the United States, and yet it doesn't happen. Um, we see so much continuity, for example, in the, there are some differences, but some continuity in the, in the foreign policies of the United States since World War II, just irrespective of which you know, charismatic or non-charismatic leader has been elected. Uh, the system is just far more complex than that. But I think people, people do have a sense in the United States that they can make, make things anew, uh, they can renew. Um, and it's great to have that idea, but I mean, how long do you go on? Um, how many centuries are you gonna go on sort of um, without confronting the fact that, that, that the United States has not, not created an equal a country of um, people who have, all, all have an equal opportunity in life. They don't. Um, yeah, and absolutely. it's never been the case. And <laughs> when, when, when they're going to accept that reality, I mean, I think that's it's it's really you know it, the idea of exceptionalism can uh, can be looked at in a very different way at the moment, which is really really wild. I mean, and I think that that's something we should talk about. I mean, it, it could be looked at in a negative sense in the, in our country right now, especially in this moment right now. And we should. I'd love to hear you talk about that, and also. If you think um, because of what we're seeing, and of course I am talking to our COVID response, I'm talking to mass incarceration, the insurrection, all this, um, you know, is do you feel like the world is more and more from your vantage point kind of waking up or, or maybe they've been awake and it just we're, we're seeing it, you know, as the world gets easier to read um, through, you know, all our connections is are people waking up to this kind of a negative exceptionalism that, that exists in our country, my country? I won't put that negativity, on negative exceptionalism has always been a, an element in a little, mm. for a very long time, an element in the American discourse over exceptionalism. Um, I mean, some of the abolitionist uh, agitation before the Civil War was a, an attempt to try to get the United States to live up to its ideals. So, you know, it went to extraordinary lengths to, um, to kind of denounce this, that or the other about the United States for its shocking conduct mm -hmm. as a nation. Um, and and it's around today. It's around in you know debates over 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 race in particular. Yeah. Um, you know, de Tocqueville understood, being a very insightful person, understood before the Civil War that, that race was a kind of central kind of conundrum for for the United States and dealing mm -hmm. dealing with that. Um, would it lead to some kind of civil war? Well, it did not quite the way that that um, Tocqueville thought, but. Um, it did lead. It did lead to a civil war, but uh, the yeah. issue wasn't really resolved by the civil war, as those of us who studied it as historians know. Um, it, continu it continues down to this very day. Mm -hmm. um, so when outsiders look at it, they do see those. They do see those really deep flaws. And um, but on another level, they look at the United States. Uh, you know, it's it's as a as a country which is. Um, Many of them are aligned with because the United States was the, the was the alternative to Soviet Soviet style communism, mm -hmm. um, and then particularly from the uh, from 1947 through to 19 to 19, the fall of communism in 1989, and so there's just a lot of a, a lot of feeling around the world, particularly in Europe, that. Yeah, we don't agree with the United States' social policies, but we think that they were on the right track in their, you know, opposition to, uh, to you know, uh, that kind of uh, polity. Um, so there's, there's still, there's a, the United States can bank on a lot of support 
in particularly in Europe uh, and and in the British uh, uh, dominion, former dominions like Australia, there's an enormous goodwill for the United States in many countries around the world. And there's understanding that the country is not perfect, but that it's better than the alternative. So that's what it amounts to. Um, but these same people are well aware of the deficiencies of the United States. But from the exceptionalist point of view, of course, the problem is that many of those problems of race uh, and class and so on are, are, are visible in other countries. I mean, uh, Australia doesn't have mass incarceration, but mm -hmm. it certainly has racialized incarceration. Yeah. You know, the population of non-white people who are in prison is way out of proportion to its uh, uh, percentage of the population, you know, um, Aboriginal or indige Indigenous people, uh, uh, you know, get a really raw deal in Australia. Um, and I think the same is probably true of Canada from what I, from what I read and what I hear. Um, so they don't, uh, on the one hand, they know that the United States has these terrible things that happen that are awfully well publicised. Mm -hmm. um, but they know that, that their own countries aren't perfect. But that means that nowhere is really come to grips with the problem of race. And this is another reason not to be an exceptionalist. Yeah. This is a global problem, not, not a national problem. Yeah, we're all dealing with that. You mentioned, it yeah. Specific national features, mm -hmm. because, and particularly because of the nature of the American Constitution, the, the Bill of Rights and so forth. And people look, people in, in this country just look at wonder at the, or amazement or, or bewilderment at the, uh, you know, the Second Amendment, for example. Um, uh, although there are many people in Australia who want to own guns, and a lot of them do, but um, they don't have that protection. Uh -huh. that they can't rely on that to have, to, for example, have a you know, semi-automatic, mm -hmm. um, uh, which was, in my opinion, you know, it's really ridiculous because it isn't something that was really at all uh, you know, foreshadowed by the founding fathers. I mean, the founding fathers didn't intend that every individual should have a semi-automatic uh, they were talking about muskets. And yeah, exactly. It was a whole, yeah. whole different weapons they were talking about, and they were talking about for different purposes. Weapons that can only kill a couple of people at a time, you know, yeah. uh, rather than the mass killing ones. Uh, so a lot of people find it uh, hard to understand. Without understanding the history, people overseas find it hard to understand how, how that changed to a state where you can own practically any weapon. Um, and um, that requires us to understand the history. It requires us to put the United States in history, not outside of it, as uh, the exceptionalism would have it. Yeah. The, um, yeah, I was going to bring up the, you know, abolitionists. And also, it also, and then later on, you know, there has been this anti-exceptionalism movements during certain parts. And one was the 70s. And, you know, after the 70s, there was a reaction to the 70s. And I just think the religious kind of based exceptionalism, and it was just really fascinating to read more about it towards the end of your book. It's it just the way it came to life in the 70s days. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, how it was a reaction to uh, what happened in the 70s, whether it's like the political upheaval or just the malaise that happened in, and how that could be really, a, how that was pushed upon the people and kind of what that can mean for a country when that takes over. Yeah, um, on the first part, I, I lived in the United States for a good part of the 1970s. So I had a very, I had an intimate knowledge of the country yeah, in the way that I actually idea. don't now. Uh -huh. um, and um, uh, everything that I wrote about the 1970s in that book was quite, uh, was, was based on that kind of more intimate knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, of course with the literature as well, but. Uh, that's been that's been produced. Um, 
you know, the 70s was a turning point. It wasn't a, wasn't a great decade for the United States in terms of its uh, global power, in terms of its internal mm -hmm. um, economic condition. Uh, and, you know, Reagan's optimism pulled the United States out of that. I would say it was really a false optimism. Um, it didn't deal with anything fundamental. It just made Americans feel better about themselves and it loosed, loosened some of the regula regulatory restrictions, mm -hmm. which enabled, you know, the kind of capitalism that we have today to really, really fl flourish unchecked. Absolutely. Um, and all that's done is intensify the problem. So sure. I treat the period from the 70s onwards as a sort of period in which exceptionalism, you know, becomes sort of more deeply entrenched than it was before and more mm -hmm. open, more in your face than it was before for various reasons that I elaborate on the book. Um, at the same time that, um, if you look at all of the indices of, of economic growth in particular, that's been declining uh, in a cyclical way, you know, over, over the subsequent decades. Um, and, and yet the United States has been able to kind of, um, you know, forget about all that, forget about what happened in the 1970s. Um, yeah, so I think, um, I think religion is a very important part of that, and particularly, you know, the rise of this the rebirth really of this idea of chosenness, which you didn't hear so much of in the early, earlier, earlier in the 20th century, at least after Woodrow Wilson. Mm -hmm. uh, and it became again, a very important part that the United States has a special role, but um, it's very much a politicized and politico-religious idea. It's not a really truly religious idea. It's mm -hmm. about, it's about the, uh, a conservative politics, yeah. which uh, kind of just merges or it becomes you know, inextricably linked to religion, to evangelical religion, and uh, you know, to uh, particularly to you know a, a Baptist faith or other other Southern evangelical faiths, mm -hmm. uh, it's really really strong. And um, you see this, you know, in your people like Jerry Falwell and so forth. And and these people are all these people are they're, they're businessmen as much as they are, uh, as much as they are religious figures. They're politicians as much as they're religious figures. Yeah. It's not really just a takeover of the United States by religion. It's more really a takeover of religion by Absolutely. Uh, certain political use groups. Using it um, to gain power. That's that's right. They, yeah. they use it to gain power uh, because you know, unlike in my country, has compulsory voting, so mm -hmm. um, that that structures the elections in a certain way. It means that um, you've really got to fight tooth and nail over that few percent who are change who might change so can be persuaded in the United States what you've got to do is to mobilize as many of the unrecognizables uh, sorry un unreconcilables most of the as many of those that you can you can uh, mm -hmm. you know put together in your coalition the better so there's a much more emphasis on the more extremist views mm. uh, in American politics than there than there are in Australia um, uh, of course, but many countries don't have compulsory voting. Compulsory voting is more of an exception yeah. than, than, it's, you know, the, than is the other system. Your system has a two-party system. It doesn't have pre preferential voting, mm -hmm. uh, but neither does Britain. So like a lot of other things, this is really derived from Britain originally. Yeah. Um, and and that, that, again, that, that strengthens the, um, the, the kind of need to go after these these constituencies, which will, you know, go out to vote, and evangelical religion, uh, uh, conservative versions of evangelical religion, that is one of them. You can get a hot button issue like abortion, 
mm-hmm. or gun rights or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, you can motivate people to go to the polls. And, and that's sort of become allied with somehow in this perverse way with Trump, who's a very uh, irreligious yes, mm-hmm. person. And yet he has the support of you know, vast numbers of conser- conservative evangelical people, which is just completely mind-boggling. Yep. The people can't see through the hypocrisy of that and decide, hey, this is not the right thing nope. for us to go. We need someone who stands up with integrity. Uh, no, um, people are voting on whether, whether they think that, that he will, you know, provide them with the necessary support on the Supreme Court or one or two other yeah, which things. He had, which he had. And I think it also... Yes, he did a good job. He did a good job for them. And I think... Trump, I mean, he did uh, because he aligned, you know, uh, religious people aligned so much. It was so overt how, you know, the structure was set up for just gaining power, just, you know, uh, using it in that way. Another interesting thing about Trump is the idea of innocence and a country's innocence has always been a feature of exceptionalism. And at that moment, which is very pertinent to a lot of the stuff uh, that you talk about in your book, but where he pushed back on the idea of Americans' innocence, Mm -hmm. where he was talking about, you know, where you know we got a lot of killers here too, um, but oh, yeah. what's 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 obvious as well. Even with that, I mean, that's even with him saying that overtly, he there's that did nothing to kind of put a chink in the idea of exceptionalism. I mean, his people are still pushing the idea. I mean, it was just a weird weird moment of honesty, is the way I, I look at it. It was it was a real moment of brilliant insight. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know I, I thought that he was. If he'd followed through on that, I thought he had a real chance of shaking things up. (laughs) But but because his aim always was simply to advance his own self-interest, and that meant his own own grandiose sense of himself, Mm -hmm. and uh, that that, um, you know he knew where to uh, just press different buttons that would that would keep the other people on side. Yeah, let me take one quick right turn because there's so many different stories, so many different names that I learned about and so many different ideas. So I just want to mention one thing um, as we kind of move towards the end of the conversation. But the name, it's just to, to highlight all, all that you can learn in this book, but the name Seymour Martin Lipset uh, appeared many times throughout the book. And I thought it would be fascinating for listeners to hear who he was and why he was important in the, the scheme of the ideas of American exceptionalism. I, I thought he was... Uh, kind of reverting back to the history of things, but I just thought it was so interesting. I'd love to hear you talk about him a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he's someone that I've, I've always been fascinated by over, over you know, several decades. Uh, yeah. I've always been interested in the social sciences and the social science approaches to history. Uh, and he was the person who came up with the idea that you uh, should look, you should compare the United States systematically with other countries. Mm-hmm. And that... Um, and you, you can take particular characteristics or come up with a general theory about the, the, the values of the country, which he did, uh, borrowing from other people, but that mm-hmm. in an in a, you know, orthodox sort of way, and then sort of apply that to see how it compared with other countries and to, to try to use the various indices uh, that you could actually measure to kind of work out, well, just how exceptional the United States was. And Lipset, to his credit, was somebody who was one of those who saw the negative side of American exceptionalism. He, yeah. he, didn't, he wasn't trying to say the United States was, was just good at everything or the best in every possible way, but he did come down with the judgment that on the, on the balance, he thought the United States was a good country and that it showed in the data. Uh, so the data always was very important. It's another matter of whether he really, really nailed it on the data. Mm-hmm. 
I don't think he did in many cases. <clears throat> many, many critics don't think he did either, but he, he tirelessly promoted this. And he, it, was, it was Lipset who, who popularized, if you can, perhaps that word isn't quite right, but he advanced that notion, a uh, particular concept within American social science and history. And he had close links with some historians at the time. He, he mm -hmm. actually edited a book with Richard Hofstadter at one stage, for example, yeah. who was a leading, one of the greatest historians uh, of, of the United States has ever been. Um, and uh, he, he, um, so he worked on this over many decades and wrote several books on it. And gradually this kind of filtered into the political discourse. Um, and was the, the idea was, the concept was taken up uh, in the uh, early part of the 20, 21st century. Um, but it, it uh, really differed from uh, Lipset's idea, which was to look at both the negative and the positive characteristics. Mm -hmm. uh, it simply emphasized the positive. Uh, so it wasn't really implementing Lipset's program. Um, but as I said, Lipset's uh, social science exceptionalism is, is a, a project which isn't possible to actually to verify because of the methodological problems that are involved in comparing every country with every other country mm -hmm. and making the United States the center of the universe before you start in order to work out what those comparisons ought to be. You're just, just, you're just not gonna get there. So he's a very interesting person. He had a background as a Trotskyite at uh, City College of New York in the late 1930s. He was a, book, a scholarly person. He came from immigrant backgrounds. He was Jew Jewish background from uh, um, Imperial Russia. I think from memory, he was actually in what is now Ukraine, but I stand to be corrected on that. Mm -hmm. Originally, I was originally there was going to be a separate chapter on Sigma Martin Lipset, but my publishers oh, no. talked me out. Because <laughs> um, it probably would have bored a lot of people if I went into it too much. Um, but uh, Lipset quite uh, enough now. He's in there quite enough. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. obviously, I've got a sneaking admiration for his dogged ability to keep on with this idea and how yeah. he eventually, you know, he had, he had, he had enormous influence within uh, the um, field of political sociology. And uh, he was incredibly uh, highly regarded. Um, many of his books were actually sort of recycling one another. He, he plagiarized himself in a way <laughs> quite a lot. I probably shouldn't say that, but uh, you know, he reused material over and over. So he got his ideas pretty clear in the 1950s when he was writing in the kind of consensus period of America, uh, idea of American history um, and uh, playing down class conflict because he was a lapsed Trotskyite, of course, mm -hmm. but he still considered himself a, a Marxist for several decades thereafter. And you can really see the strong traces of Marxism in his work, you know, pretty much right through. He never ever thought, saw the United States or proclaimed it as some kind of chosen nation or saw the, that religion was anything other than one of the factors in exceptionalism that you could measure you know, the degree of religiosity, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, so he'd be interested in measuring that against other countries, but he wasn't interested in proclaiming the United States as a chosen, mm -hmm. a chosen nation. So his, his, he was quite antithetical to the way, to the actual way in which uh, exceptionalism developed in the early 20th century. But uh, tragically, he had a, um, a stroke um, uh, just before, nine, a few months before 9-11. And so he didn't really mm -hmm. live through that period when Bush was, you know, reigniting the whole question of the United States as a chosen nation. But he sure did have, a, there was a bit of influence there. Um, he had a link yeah. to Giuliani, wasn't one of his yeah. editors, the uh, sure. one of Giuliani's foreign uh, uh, policy, advis policy advisors, which was yeah, that's exactly right. 
And no, you, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Invention Marxism. That was um, uh, something we were talking about earlier, the roots of it. I, I mean, some of the roots of exceptionalism come from Marxism, ideas, which, which, which is well. So um, safe, yeah. safe to say with all, you know, now that there's some, you know, uh, you know, there's a heightened um, sense of, uh, uh, you know, make America great again and, exceptionalism just still you know really doing well in america to say and also you know there's a lot of people that that speak to a lot of the anti uh exceptionalism ideas i'm i'm, I'm one of them that that's you know thinks we need to really look in the mirror and state who we are but safe to say this idea isn't going anywhere soon is that 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 correct it's not going to, it's not going to go away any anytime soon that's yeah. for sure um, uh, it's possible that the actual use of that term might change again because, hmm. because the term American exceptionalism, as you know from the book, really only dates from 1929 when uh, in a, a Marxist dispute over whether the United States was following the uh, path to socialism that, uh, that the Russian, the uh, Soviets uh, thought should happen or would happen. Hmm. Um, although there, was, there were earlier cases, I mentioned the book of... Um, of, of uh, Lenin using the term exceptionalism to refer to Russia. Mm. Uh, and before that, in 1861, uh, William Howard Russell, a, a, a British commentator on the American Civil War, actually used the term American exceptionalism then, but there was no follow-up from that. It was just, that was just out of the blue, but it did reflect that idea that the United States was a, um, in 1861 was a, a sort of excess of democracy, that the country just wasn't governable and it showed up in the fact that they uh, not only did they uh, part of it secede, but that the armies were not sort of as well drilled and trained and uh, compliant as uh, as as Russell thought the British army was. You know, mm -hmm. so it was it, it it does it does go back as a name that far, but as a term, not really not till 1929, and you know, as a kind of ideology, not really until the 19, 1990s. I would put it, even though it wasn't actually being used openly, except by lips and people like that, um, the idea of um, the idea of the indispensable nation uh, of Madeleine Albright—that is really a very fundamentally exceptionalist mm -hmm. idea. That uh, in her extraordinary statement where she said that Americans Americans can see further than other countries, that they that they're kind of above. They're above time. This is an old exceptionalist idea. Dangerous. It's, I mean, it's using these ideas for geopolitical gains. It's really, really mm. wild. And then, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what they're using it for. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, no doubt that it's strongly held belief. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. The best, the best uh, people for spreading that idea are people who truly believe it. Yep. Themselves. Yep. Uh, it's, it's about people's self-belief. And even though it might be a fragile belief at times, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's as long as you constantly reassert it, move on to the next thing. Yeah. You can carry on. And that's what America is all about, moving on to the next thing. Yeah, I, bet, um, I bet you could find a way to rationalize it anyway, too. So yeah, I just want the yeah. listeners to also know that, I mean, we touched on a lot of ideas, but that was just the tip of the iceberg for the way you like consummately really broke down American exceptionalism was wonderful. So I want to say thank you, especially for, uh, you know, waking up early on the other side, other side of the earth. So thank you for your time and for talking about this book. It's su super fascinating. Thank you very much, Mike. It's, a, it's been a pleasure to be on your program. And uh, 
I wish you all the best with your work. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.